in the short term, a lot of people fail to invest. They fail to put their money to work because they get really scared that if I put my money into the markets today, it may go down tomorrow. And this is where loss aversion kicks in. In the long term, tomorrow's dip over five or 10, 15 years is going to be utterly inconsequential to my investing activity. But right now, when I'm making this decision, it seems to matter a lot. Have you ever wondered about how we make decisions about our money? Or why we feel the way we do about those decisions? Welcome to Nudging Financial Behavior, the podcast that aims to help you understand how and why you make certain decisions about money. Presented by Dr. Giselle Willows, an expert in behavioral finance. This podcast is all about looking at human behavior and biases, especially when it comes to your finances. You can catch the series on YouTube, the Nudging Financial Behavior blog, or on your favorite podcast platform. Be sure to like and subscribe to ensure you don't miss an episode. Special thanks to our sponsor, IG Market South Africa, a world-leading online trading provider that gives you access to opportunities across thousands of financial markets through their intuitive platforms and apps. Let's get started. Welcome to the second episode of season two of the Nudging Financial Behavior podcast. I'm Dr. Giselle Willows. Thank you so much for joining us here today. In this series, we're breaking down human behavior and biases as we try to help you understand how and why you make certain decisions about your finances. In episode one, we were talking about risk aversion, and today we're moving on to loss aversion. A lot of people actually use the terms risk aversion and loss aversion interchangeably, but that's wrong. They're two different biases. In this episode, we're unpacking what loss aversion means. It's quite a complex one. So I've got Greg Davies to help with information. Greg is a fellow doctor of behavioral finance and is head of that division for the company Oxford Risk in the UK. Before we dive into it, please click the like button. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the channel. Like I said, loss aversion is quite a complex bias. People who are loss averse tend to display both risk averse and risk seeking behavior in an attempt to avoid facing a loss. This is because the value of a loss far outweighs the value of a gain of the same magnitude. Okay, let me break that down for you. I'm going back to tossing a coin to help me out here. You have a fair toss of a coin. So a 50-50 chance of winning and a 50-50 chance of losing. If you lose the coin toss, you have to pay over 10,000, insert whichever currency works for you. Now, how much money would you need as a potential win to make the bet worth taking? If you set a straight 10,000 win or lose, then that shows no loss aversion. You're giving the win and the loss the same value. If you said you'd need the chance of winning 15,000 or 20,000 to balance out the scales, then that's reflecting loss aversion. You give more value to the potential loss of 10,000 than you do to the gain. In short, you need to be compensated with a higher potential gain to justify the loss. Simply put, when you are loss averse, losing is more painful than the joy you'd feel from winning something of the same value. To get back to our discussion from the previous episode, when you're risk averse, you value gains and losses as equals. You just don't like the uncertainty that comes with it. But with a loss aversion, you place more subjective value on the loss. 
while we're talking about risk tolerance again, I thought I'd quickly bring my guest in now to answer a few questions on the topic. I've got Greg Davies with me. Greg is an expert in risk tolerance and has published a lot on the topic. I know, I know, this episode is about loss aversion, but he's also an expert on that, trust me. It'd be wrong for me to not talk to him about risk for just a moment. Welcome, Greg. Thank you, good to be here. So in the previous episode, we unpacked quite a bit around risk aversion or risk tolerance. As you know, it's got to do with our personality, but then also our environment and context. And these things are all going to influence our risk behavior. And I know you've previously done some work around risk profiling, and then what you talk about as your willingness to take risk, and then your ability to take risk. Yeah. Can you take us through your thoughts on that first concept, the willingness to take risk? Yeah, so um, if we think about um, risk tolerance, what, what we want to do is to understand what's the, the amount of risk someone is willing to take for their total, their total assets, their total wealth in the long term. And each of us has a certain willingness to be able to, 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 to want to trade off um, the chance of good outcomes for the risk of bad outcomes. And understanding that is, is crucially important. But when we talk about risk tolerance, we're really thinking about um, what do I want if I'm able to scrub my, my personality clean of all of the immediate context and immediate environment? It's like, what is my deep-seated desire to trade, trade off risk and return in the, in the long term? And that's what we might think of as our core willingness to take risk. And of course, in the moment, it can be, it can be different because it's influenced by the weather and what I've read in the newspaper and all sorts of things. So being able to differentiate between my long-term willingness to take risk, which is a sensible uh, thing on which to base a portfolio because I'm going to be holding it for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and my short-term willingness to take risk, which can be quite different and all very context dependent and is a very bad basis on which to build a portfolio. Because if you just happen to be in a really risk averse mood this morning, because you've just lost money or your friends have just lost money, and you, on that basis, put yourself into an 80% bond portfolio for the next 40 years, it's not going to be a very good idea. But ultimately, the willingness to take risk is your psychological willingness to trade off risk and return. And then if we move on to the second part, our ability to take risk, something that I personally don't think we spend enough time talking about. Can you yeah. tell us about that? Yeah, and here I would divide that into two. So a part of what I've just been talking about, this, this short term, all the, the short term influences of context and news and, and emotions that come in, that's one part of my ability to take risk. I, I may have a particular willingness to take risk in the long term, but I may be emotionally incapable of surviving the journey because I get too stressed or too emotionally up and down. So we can think of that as our, our emotional ability to take risk or our behavioral ability to take risk. And then just as important is our financial ability to take risk because in taking risk, we have to be able to afford our ongoing expenses. We've got to be able to pay the rent. We've got to be able to buy the groceries, whatever it may be. And if I am taking risk in the long term in a way that is jeopardizing my ability to navigate the journey financially, that is my financial ability to take risk. And all three of those components are important in judging what is the right answer for any given investor. Is that almost touching on something, I think, which some people refer to as your human capital? Uh, human capital is a big part of it. So my, my financial ability to take risk uh, really is around how much of my total wealth am I putting into the markets right now? And I mean total wealth in a very broad concept. So 
my total wealth might include the equity I have in my house, you know, the, the value of my house minus the mortgage. If that's positive, it means I've got a little bit of a cushion that I'm not actually putting into the markets. And that cushion gives me a little bit of a higher risk capacity or a higher ability to take risk. But for most of us, our ability to take risk, yes, comes from our human capital. It comes from the fact that ahead of me, I have the ability to fund my expenses because I've got income coming in, because I've got, because I'm educated, I have the ability to, um, to earn an income, to get a job, whatever it may be. The stuff that in younger in your life, a huge part of your total wealth is actually not wealth you have right now. It's the wealth that you're able to earn in the future. And for a lot of us, that is the thing that buys us the ability to take risk for two reasons. One is it means that I can pay my expenditure without having to dip into my, my investment account, without having to sell anything down. And secondly, it gives me a, a cushion um, so that what I am putting into the market right now is actually a much smaller part of my total wealth than I think it is, because part of my wealth, a large part of my wealth is often in my human capital. So am I correct in thinking that the higher your human capital, the better your ability to withstand risk and risky decisions? And then if that's the case, how do we go about practically improving our human capital? Or for the financial planners that listen to this podcast, how can they encourage their clients to, yeah. instead of thinking about how to tolerate more risk, to rather change the frame of that discussion to improving your human capital? Yeah, so that's absolutely right. The, the more my ability to go out and source income because I can get a job or I can earn money by, by whatever it is I do in my life, um, the, the greater the risk cushion I've got, the, more, the, the less I'm going to need to, to rely on my investable assets to fund the essential things I need to fund in my life. So building that up is, is really about investing in yourself. Uh, and you can think of that in a positive way, which is building up your social network, building up your education and accreditations, anything that makes your um, future income either larger or more stable are things that will increase your human capital. On the, on the negative side, the other things that will increase your human capital is um, wanting less. If I spend less and I'm less impulsive and less likely to go out and spend money on a fast car or you know expensive dinners, the more I have self-control over my spending, the greater my, my human capital because the safer um, my financial situation is relative to what I've got coming in. I'm a big proponent of that. I often tell people you've got two levers, right? Increase your income or lower your expenses. Yep. And it's actually way easier and has much greater utility in the long term to rather think about ways to reduce your expenses now rather than only thinking about extra ways to bring in income. Yeah, it's, it, if you think about a financial planning context, uh, you know, very often a lot of effort is put into, oh, well, should we nudge the risk up or down of your investments? And should we... Um, and should we you know, change our spending patterns? The, the thing that most people have most direct control over is their expectations and simply persuading themselves to want less. And that, that by its very nature increases your human capital. This is all really helpful. Thank you, Greg. But don't go away. I do still want to chat to you just a little bit later about loss aversion. So we'll see you then. Sure. In order to expand on this concept of loss aversion, I'm going to turn back to the founders of behavioral finance, psychologists and economists, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. They developed something called prospect theory. 
Imagine you have an X and Y axis graph. For those listening to the podcast, you can find a link to the graph in the show notes. The horizontal axis, the X axis, measures the actual value of our gain or loss, while the vertical axis, Y, measures how we value that gain or loss. When you move to the left of the graph along the X axis, you increase your loss. When you move to the right of the graph, you increase your gain. When you move up the Y axis, you're seeing how much subjective positive value you place on the action. When you move down the Y axis, you're seeing the negative value you place. When you're not loss averse, your S curve on the graph will be symmetrical. For example, a loss of 100 will take you one point down on the Y axis and a gain of 100 will take you one point up. Now, when you are loss averse, this S curve is not symmetrical. You'll see a much deeper curve below the X axis on the loss side than you'll see above it. For example, a gain of 100 will take you that same one point up, while a loss of 100 will take you maybe two points down. The subjective value you place on the loss is much larger than the loss itself. And prospect theory is all about that subjectivity you place on the loss. It's different for everyone, but most of us experience loss aversion to some degree. Something I should also mention is the reference point or anchor point of this graph. In our current example, we're using zero as our reference point, but that reference point can change depending on several factors, many of them being the factors that we spoke about when looking at risk tolerance in the previous episode. And just as we showed with the coin toss for risk aversion, your loss aversion can be more or less depending on how much that coin toss is worth. So if I said you had to pay over 100 if you lost the coin toss, you'd probably be okay with the potential to win just 100 if the toss goes in your favor. If the amount was 100,000 that you would lose, then your loss aversion might kick into high gear and tell you to ask for maybe 500,000 as the winning compensation. These biases are never completely cut and dry. There are levels to them within people. Okay, I know if you were listening to this that this might have been difficult to follow if you couldn't see the graph. It's really a great illustration of how loss aversion plays out in our minds. So I really recommend those listening to go check out the graph. But I also have a few real world examples to help you understand loss aversion a bit better now. There was an experimental study done by the American Economic Association. I'll link to it and all the other studies I'm going to mention in the show notes. The study measured the presence of loss aversion in a high stakes context, professional golfers' performance on the PGA Tour. As we know, golfers are scored according to the number of strokes they take during a tournament. Yet each hole has a salient reference point known as par. 1.6 million putts were analyzed using precise laser measurements and was found that golfers play better when attempting to avoid dropping a shot than when trying to gain one when they consistently leave their shots short. In relative terms, golfers were equating a bogey, one shot above par, to a loss, and a birdie, one shot below par, to a gain. Here's another example. A study published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology looked at how people reacted to news and medical information depending on how it was framed. The topic was promoting breast self-examinations. Two different pamphlets were handed out to women. Pamphlet A stated, Research shows that women who do breast self-examinations have an increased chance of finding a tumor in the early, more treatable stage of the disease. 
Penford B stated, Research shows that women who do not do breast self-examinations have a decreased chance of finding a tumor in the early, more treatable stage of the disease. The study showed that Penford B, framed as a loss, created significantly more awareness about breast self-examination behavior than Penford A, which was framed as a gain. And in case you thought you recognized that voice, it's our intro guy, Caesar. We got him back in to help us out this season. A good example of a product designed to take advantage of the behaviors attached to loss aversion are insurance policies. If we are loss averse and make decisions to avoid potential losses, then insurance products are perfect for us. They are designed to highlight the potential loss. This then creates the anchor pushing us to choose the option that avoids such losses. What I'm hoping I'm succeeding in showing you with all these real world examples of loss aversion is that we make decisions based on the value we place on potential losses and gains rather than the actual outcome. Framing also plays a large part in how we react based on our level of loss aversion. As was shown in the medical pamphlet study, the way the information is given to you can really impact how you react. Imagine a doctor tells you that you have a 10% chance of dying or a 90% chance of living. Statistically, there is no difference between these two statements. But you're going to feel a lot worse if you receive the information framed in terms of you dying. We covered framing in detail in episode eight of season one. I'll add the link to that episode in the description so that you can have a refresher if you want. But Greg Davies is still with me, I think. Greg, are you still there? I'm, I'm still here, still here. I want to get your thoughts on loss aversion, please. I feel like we all know the answer to this question, but I want to ask it anyway. Are we mm. all loss averse? Ooh, it's, it's an interesting question, actually, because there are these huge academic meta studies about this. Um, um, it, it, the answer is mostly yes. Um, not everybody is loss averse in every environment. There are people who actually you know, don't display it in certain environments and, and only display it in others. But I think on the whole, it is a safe bet to say that we all have a tendency towards being loss averse. And uh, because it is a bias, it is something that causes us to deviate from what economics will economists will perhaps narrowly think of as rational behavior because it is a bias it can cost us money so it is something that i think all of us need to be on guard against yes so if we are all loss averse is this a problem or when does it become a problem um it becomes a problem when it causes our decision making to deviate from uh, the decisions that will be best for our the objectives we're trying to pursue so most of us, if we're investors, we are trying to grow, grow our wealth over the long term. Um, the, the thing about loss aversion is because it is about framing, it is inherently short term. It's about the decision I'm making today. And none of us ever make decisions in the long term. We only ever make decisions in the present now. So if I am responding to a particular framing of games, gains and losses in a way that pulls me, that makes me scared of the red, scared of the lost stuff, and it causes me to place too much emotional attention on these losses than is correct for the decision I'm trying to make for the long term, it means I'm making a different decision to the one I should do. And that costs us money. If I, and I'll just give you one example. Let's make it very practical. In the long term, we should all be invested. We should all be invested. Um, first, we set aside a, a safety buffer, right? We all need that safety buffer. Um, to make sure that we can withstand the ups and downs of the market. But beyond that, 
the, the sensible thing is to take the rest of your investable wealth, put it into the markets in a diversified portfolio and leave it alone. You don't even have to do much more beyond that. If you do those things, you'll be fine. Now you can do more, of course, but you don't have to. In the short term, a lot of people fail to invest. They fail to put their money to work because they get really scared that if I put my money into the markets today, it may go down tomorrow. And this is where loss aversion kicks in. In the long term, tomorrow's dip over five or 10, 15 years is going to be utterly inconsequential to my investing activity. But right now, when I'm making this decision, it seems to matter a lot. So what I do is I don't invest. I, I postpone, I go, oh, I'll wait till next week when I feel more comfortable. Or maybe I do invest, but instead of investing everything I need to, I only invest 50% of it. And we see all around the world, probably the biggest behavioral cost that most people make is not what they do when they invest, it's that they leave too much of their savings sitting, doing nothing year after year after year after year. And a large part of that can be attributed to loss aversion. It's my fear of that short-term red patch that I may face that leads me to sit on the sidelines and it is hugely expensive. Yeah, when you were talking about red there, I just thought about traders because I feel like when you're in the trading space, it's all about losses. You're constantly making losses. So we do have some traders that listen to this podcast. Can you give any tips to them on how to manage loss aversion or how they can spot this in their trading decisions? Yeah, I mean, actually, one of the things I've always thought is that um, the color red can be a problem here. I mean, simply reconfiguring your trading screen so it's it's not nice bright green and horrible nasty red might narrow the emotional gap between the gains and losses for you so i think these things i mean of course it's set up for a reason because it draws your attention but it's precisely because it draws your attention in conjunction with loss aversion that it may trigger poor responses but the how we overcome this short of turning off your trading screen which by the way sometimes is not a bad idea if you're in a particularly stressed state if you're emotionally charged, if there is a lot of red around, sometimes taking a pause, blanking out your screen can be the best thing for you. Just go for a walk around the block, I don't know, go to the pub, whatever it may be, just, just get out of there for a bit until you're in an emotionally and cognitively better state. Um, actually, if you go to the pub, you're probably only likely to get to an emotionally better state. But um, the, the, the thing about loss aversion is it is, it is a framing thing. And that means there are things I can do about this. So if I take my portfolio, the more I break it down into component parts and look at those parts individually, the more I am likely to see red. So if I can look at my portfolio, imagine my portfolio on a, as a whole is up a little bit, it's green, it's up 1%. And if I only look at my total portfolio, I see a nice green number and I'm nice and comfortable. If I break that down into its 50 constituents parts, I guarantee you, even when times are going well, some of them will be flashing red. It draws your attention, it triggers loss aversion. So the first thing about, about loss aversion is try always, always, always to focus on the big picture first before you go into the detail because it sets your emotional state at, at, a, at the big picture level first. And then if I want to investigate the red, I can, but I'm not panicking about seeing a red number first and foremost and then letting that take on undue emotional space in my decision making. And the same is true with time horizons. Um, you know, we know, for example, that most equity indices around the world um, 
post losses in about 40% of one month periods. So if I, if I look at my portfolio every month, about 40% of the time I will see a red number. If I only look at my portfolio once a year, that number comes down to about 10%. It's the same investment, it's the same portfolio, but the more narrow the time slice I look into it, the more frequent I look at it, um, the more I'm triggering uh, um, this loss aversion bias, this emotional response. Now, I'm not necessarily saying for a trader, don't look at your portfolio. You're a trader, you're gonna wanna look at your portfolio. But the order in which you allow yourself to assess information is important. So if you're trying to um, grow your wealth over the long term, or if you're trying to trade and you're trying to say, I, my, my objectives are set over a 12 month period or a three month period, always try to look at that time frame first before I look at what happens today or what happens this week. Because the more I look to the longer term pattern first, a bit like if I look at the whole portfolio first, I'm going to be seeing a smaller portion of red. I'm going to be in a different emotional state than if I instantly dive in and go, what happened in the last five minutes in the markets? So a lot about it is trying to arrange how you approach the information you look at and in what order so that it aligns better to your objectives. Yes, and I mean, we can change our screens to dark mode. Maybe there's a gap in the market to change your trading screen from red and green to rather make it, I don't know, pink and purple. I don't know, change the colors. Yeah. Yeah, or, 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 or reconfigure. You know, if, if you're someone who is judged on, a, you know, let's say you're a professional investor, a professional trader, and you're judged on a monthly basis, right? Uh, you should be looking at a different set of numbers as your default to someone who's being judged on a weekly basis or someone who's being judged on a, on a six monthly basis. Um, and I think there's a whole industry to come of personalized information configuration to, uh, to, to make sure that my emotional states I have while I'm going through the process of decision making is better aligned to what I'm trying to achieve. And that, that alignment may be based on things like what are your objectives? When is your boss going to judge whether you're up and down? When does my bonus get announced? But equally, it may be based on aspects of your financial personality. Are you naturally a more anxious person or a more calm person? You should be seeing a different set of numbers as a result. What do you think about the importance of spending enough time in a demo account before you start trading with real money? Although I suppose it's very different playing with pretend money or losing pretend money versus real money. I think that can probably help. I mean, one of the things we know is that um, what we would measure, um, you know, in our tools at Oxford Risk, uh, when we look at measuring financial personality on many dimensions, things we've talked about already, um, you know, uh, risk, uh, risk tolerance, uh, composure levels. One of the things that tends to cause these to, to increase over time is time in the market, is experience, right? If you come to, to investing or trading as a complete neophyte, you're going to have a different set of emotional responses than someone who has lived through the, the experience. Now, ideally, of course, you have 20 years of real experience with a few big financial crises thrown in there to really give you the, the deep long-term perspective. But I think things like demo accounts can help us to just get that little bit more purchase on the the red versus green dichotomy and 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 the importance of of putting these in context if i could say one thing there though i think what is also important if you're in a demo account is um and this is less from a trading perspective this is a more from a grow your wealth over the long term investing perspective 
the wealth that you are not putting into the markets because you're now on a demo account rather than a real account, what is it doing while you're waiting? Is it sitting in a savings account, earning nothing and bleeding away money with inflation? Or is it while you're waiting, parked in a nice diversified investment portfolio? Um, you know, those two things, some people can end up playing with a demo account for a very long time before they're comfortable enough to get going. And if your wealth is not doing anything for you in the meanwhile, you're, you're kind of kicking yourself in the teeth before you get going. Yeah, risk aversion and loss aversion are such big concepts and can be quite complex to wrap your head around. Indeed. <laughs> it's been great to have you here to talk about both these biases. Thank you so much for your insights, Greg. Thank you. To summarize, prospective losses bother us more than prospective gains. That's what differentiates loss aversion from risk aversion. This means that the choices we make are often based on the subjective version of a situation rather than the objective reality. We should be mindful of this and always differentiate between price and value and make decisions based on the intrinsic value of the transaction. When it comes to your investments, loss aversion can play out in ways that can be very dangerous to your portfolio and your potential earnings. The fear of loss can lead you to take risky decisions and hold on to losing stocks for too long or sell winning stocks too early. I mentioned at the start of this episode that we display both risk-seeking and risk-averse behavior with loss aversion. We're risk-seeking with our losses and risk-averse with our gains. We didn't focus on that technicality in this episode, but we will do so in episode four when we chat about the disposition effect, a manifestation of loss aversion in our investing decisions. For now, remember that the best defense against this bias is to have a well-defined plan for asset allocation that can help you steer clear of emotional decisions. I also really like Greg's point about how often you assess your portfolio. Make sure it's done in a measured time frame so that you aren't setting yourself up to make emotional knee-jerk reactions. That's it for this episode of the Nudging Financial Behavior podcast. But that's not it for our discussion on risk aversion and loss aversion. There's still quite a bit more to unpack. Next up, we're going to look at the difference between risk and uncertainty because not understanding the difference between these two brings up a whole bunch of other biases, including gambler's fallacy. Before we go, don't forget to like this episode and hit the subscribe button so you know when the next episode drops. See you in episode three. That was Nudging Financial Behavior, hosted by behavioral finance expert, Dr. Giselle Willows. Make sure you like and subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. You can catch the Nudging Financial Behavior podcast on YouTube, our blog, or your favorite podcast streaming platform. Thank you again to our sponsors, IG Market South Africa, for helping to bring the show to life. And now for the disclaimer. This podcast should not be seen as advice. All the information and opinions are of a general nature. They are not intended to address the needs or circumstances of any individual. We are not financial advisors, neither are any of our staff or service providers, nor is our sponsor. All expressions of opinion by the host or guest are subject to change without notice in reaction to shifting market conditions. Any information you get from us should be seen as only that, information only. <laughs>